Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Pep Talk, AASA's Education Policy Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson Ng, and I'm AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at Pep Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as edu policy. All shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note, nellerson at aasa.org or on Twitter at noellerson. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, is with Bruce Baker, a professor in the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Bruce's research focuses on state school finance policy, teacher labor markets, school leadership labor markets, and higher education finance and policy. I enjoyed this conversation with Bruce because, well, I always enjoy a conversation with Bruce, but this one in particular, because it includes conversation on his most recent paper, a really cool and interesting look at state education funding formulas. Yes, I used cool and interesting in the same sentence as state education funding formula and meant it. I'm thankful for the opportunity to introduce you all to Bruce, who was a keynote speaker at AASA's National Conference on Education Federal Relations Luncheon in LA this past February, whose research is really critical to informing some very relevant conversations at the federal, state, and local levels, but most importantly, because his research and presentations are accessible, applicable, and understandable. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. Bruce Baker is a professor in the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. His recent work has focused on measuring cost variations associated with schooling context and student population characteristics, including ways to better design state school finance policies and local district allocation formulas, including weighted student funding for better meeting the needs of students. Bruce, I know that you are a busy guy, so thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Noel, for uh, having me. Um, certainly uh, something I enjoy talking about. So I'm going to jump right in with some of our easier kind of warm-up questions. But for our pep talk listeners, give us your elevator speech on what an education or economics professor does. What's your day-to-day? I'm a professor in the Graduate School of Education at, at Rutgers University, um, and I was previously at the University of Kansas for 11 years, also in the in the School of Education. Um, and so my, you know, my workload is split between, I, I teach courses. Most of my courses that I've taught at the University of Kansas and at um, Rutgers are in the, uh, in the leadership program. I work with kind of aspiring school and district level, uh, mostly public school uh, leaders. Um, and I've tended over time to teach classes um, on kind of quantitative analysis, but applied work for school leaders. Um, I've also, you know, certainly taught plenty of courses on school finance, but also kind of district level and, and school level kind of, uh, resource management, um, at both Kansas and, and Rutgers. Um, but you know, one of the weird quirks is because I've been so involved over the years, um, in school finance litigation and education law more generally. And I find myself as a result, hanging out with a lot of the folks in the ed law association. I also find myself teaching school law. Um, so I've got kind of an, an interesting mix of courses that I teach, but I, I spend, um, you know, the rest of my day kind of writing research, uh, you know, geeking out, running numbers um, on, on school finance. 
and doing a lot of work for, for states, whether it's uh, state policy consulting. I've done some recent projects for the state of Maryland. Um, I've got a current project for the state of Vermont. Um, or, you know, work that I've done in school finance litigation, consulting with plaintiff groups and advocacy groups around the country to kind of help them better understand, you know, what's going on with their state school finance system, what needs to be fixed, and, and how might we do that through litigation, or usually it involves some kind of combination of litigation and policy advocacy and really just generally rallying the troops. Um, but I provide more technical support and reporting and guidance and analysis uh, in those efforts. So this is a really interesting clarification because at AASA, we focus on federal policy. We won't take a position on state policy. The caveat here is that when we're particularly talking about school economics or school funding, all of it ties together. And while you do a lot of your work and a, a lot of your work focuses on state level analysis and a lot of your policy support is state level, the ideas behind this, equity, progressivity, adequacy, effort, a lot of that spans all of those levels. And to, while you're doing state level analysis, those trends can help inform what we're looking at the federal level. Do you wanna make any connections there? I mean, you do a lot of state work, but your work has absolute implications for what we do at the federal level, correct? Yes, and I mean, the interesting thing is most, most of what I do ends up having to be a state by state effort so far. Um, it's really kind of interesting. There's a bit of a shift going on now. So mo most of what I've done, you know, state policy, state school finance policy is it's, it's state legislation. It's, it's a whole messy bunch of calculations that have to somehow make it through, you know, a deliberative process of state legislators. Um, but oftentimes, you know, in the context of state courts who have the authority to make in their constitutions to make certain determinations about the equity or adequacy of state school finance systems. Every state's different, even the, the governance structure, the constitutional language, the role of the courts, the political dynamics of the state legislatures. Um, so it's long been really a state by state kind of grinding effort to see, you know, can we put a dent in school finance policy in Colorado through litigation despite conflicting constitutional constraints and goals. Can we do it in Kansas? What about Arizona? But one, and, and most of the analyses that we've done in the school funding fairness reports over the years point to issues that really must be, can only be, or, or most often addressed in the context of those state deliberations. It has struck me, the new piece of this report which I'm sure you noticed, is that there's, there's relative adequacy indicators which come out of the, the report that I did with, with my graduate students and, and with Bob Kim, who is a research fellow, about a year ago that, that we called Shame of the Nation, which looked at the relative costs of achieving common outcome goals across the country and where states and individual districts fall in their current spending with respect to what it would even cost to get everyone to current national average outcomes. This speaks to that bigger kind of national picture. We're always making these international comparisons about saying, where does the US compare with respect to Finland or Singapore? And, and we're always decrying the results of that um, as if somehow we have an analogous national system when <laughs> in fact we have, these, we have these 51 vastly disparate systems. Our national average is dragged down by that mix of states that a 
can't on their own even afford to bring themselves up to spending for national average outcomes and be a whole bunch of states that don't even try. Meanwhile, places like Massachusetts, New Jersey, and a handful of others compare on their own favorably to Finland, Singapore, or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that piece of the new report has really got me thinking, and in fact, it's the topic, shameless sales pitch, of chapter 10 of my book, uh, <laughs> is, is you know how can we start looking at a new approach to a federal school aid program that's more analogous to state aid models that shoots for you know what funding is needed to achieve these common outcome goals um, and should there be minimum state effort requirements tied into that so that we don't just let arizona colorado and tennessee off the hook for their low effort we're, we're gonna get an, i'm gonna put a pin in that right there bruce yeah. because that is a topic just based on what you've talked about we're gonna go off the rails i have some questions that i'm gonna throw your way we're gonna unpack chapter 10 and this idea of a new approach to federal funding after we get through the initial conversation of the paper, because our listeners are very familiar with the fact that we I share the questions with our guests ahead of time. But I do want to come back because the minute you started talking about state funding formulas, and we do know absolutely there's 50 disparate, 50 separate state structures that drive education. But the big difference, equity outside of that, willingness and ability. One, you can control more readily than the other, but when you look here at the federal level, we've seen this play out in a couple of different ways, E-rate, Title I, or even just tax revenues. I, my, I'm from a state that net pays in. We get back less than we give in. Why should we have to pay more? That's a broader tax conversation or a philosophy on redistribution of funds. And to date, the conversation, at least for education, has predominantly relied on equity. I want to come back a little bit more later, though, because anytime I hear the words New approach to federal funding, my educate goes pitter-patter, but we're going to come back to that, and I do want to talk more because essentially of some of the buckets that you put into place in your paper, and it was effort, adequacy, and progressivity, Yes, it's the willingness and effort, one of which you have more control over and one of which is some somewhat a subject of your state tax policy as well as what your economies are. But those two are a big tension. And I think that's the, 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 the big rub is in coming over the overcoming those two tensions. But I want to redirect us back to our regularly scheduled programming and <laughs> the questions I sent ahead. And then we'll get into this idea of restructuring or looking at a new funding formula. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, so another softball question, and this is a question that I would be so horrible at answering. If you ask me my favorite anything, I'm probably going to give you the top three because there's just a lot that I like in life. So what's the favorite paper, what's your favorite paper that you've written, or if that's too tough, the favorite topic that you've covered? Well, okay, so this, obviously, I have three or four. Um, there's some that are, you know, more fun than others. I, you know, I used to I used to take a little bit more of a glib approach to things, be it on my blog or in my papers, but some of those were, you know, and were in the process of real, revealing kind of harsh realities. And one paper that always sticks in my head is a piece I wrote in the mid 2000s with, uh, with Preston Green, who's now at UConn in, in education law, called uh, Tricks of the Trade. It was in the American Journal of Education. And what we did was reveal states that had the largest racial gaps in funding after controlling for a number of other factors. And then we explored the history behind how those racial gaps were kind of retained as we moved from the pre-Brown to the post-Brown era. You know, what kind of tricks 
and, and policy adjustments were made intentionally by legislators to reinforce the racial disparities that existed in the era when they had been allowed to run separate and largely unequal systems. Um, so that was a really kind of fun and interesting combination of empirical analysis, legal analysis, and historical analysis. Um, but it also revealed you know, that there are a lot of things you can do in a state school finance system in the name of promoting equity that in fact do the opposite. And that serves as the basis for a number of pieces I did after that. There's a piece, a report I did with Center for American Progress called Stealth Inequalities, which talks about and these little pieces of state aid formulas that in fact exacerbate inequities rather than resolving them, which is what state aid is really supposed to do. So yeah, tricks of the trade is, is one of the, uh, you know, one of the ones that really kind of sticks in my head as a fun and interesting piece that then led to a lot more um, to follow, but it was also a bit of a revelation to me to see that, you know, how these states like Alabama is one of the example from tricks of the trade was that the state of Alabama had had differential, that they had been funding schools on personnel units and, and a black teacher unit was worth half the value of a white teacher unit in the segregated schools for funding so that they could allocate less money to the schools that were the black schools than to the white schools. They shifted the system in the post-Brown era. They shifted the system to being based on the degrees and credentials held by teachers. Of course, the white teachers had higher degrees and credentials. The black teachers did not. The white teachers were still in white schools. The black teachers still in predominantly black schools because they had largely resisted segregation, desegregation. And the system of funding based on the credentials of teachers simply reinforced the disparities that existed when they had been assigning black and white teachers different, different values to begin with. So, and there were so many examples like that throughout state school finance formulas, which made for a fun and interesting yet deeply disturbing paper. My more recent revelation, which <laughs> I've written about on my blog, is that you know, I used to say this stuff in a more kind of glib and sarcastic way, but I've, I've also come to realize that it really is, it's not funny and it's really quite disturbing. Well, I think you hit on something though, because it isn't funny. And this is something we're going to talk about later. This is a question I think I came to you with almost immediately. The findings in your papers are so obvious and written in such a manner that you feel like you just got slapped upside the head and it kind of leaves you scratching your head wondering, well, why haven't we fixed this? And so there's nothing funny about that. But particularly when you think about the population that our schools serve, the students, they only have one shot at a K-12 education, and we're running them through systems that are funded with these inherently flawed, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, constructs, and that, that's a really big missed opportunity, and there, there's nothing funny about that, And but then again, that's why information like that in this paper and the information you've built your writing career around are so, so critical to these conversations. We've had, and, and I guess the revelation I came to, I did a, I did a blog post last spring. I think the title of it is, it's just not funny anymore because we've had generations of kids go through some of these systems where we fought school finance cases and, and lost. And after the 10 years since we made no progress through litigation, the system has only gotten worse. And 
you know, we, that's, uh, you know, another generation of kids have passed, you know, from kindergarten through 10th grade um, in a system in decline and more have entered that system. And, you know, what does it take for Colorado to overcome that conflict between its constitutional limitation on taxation and its constitutional obligation to have some form of decent schooling? Well, and then we can go further down the rabbit hole because even within Colorado, and I'm just picking Colorado because that's what you said, but we could pick on my current state of residence, Virginia, or my native New York, overcoming the general system. But let's also look at, that means we have a generation of kids who have gone through where some are in an okay school and some are not. I mean, there are exorbitant differences between school districts too, as much as subject of state finance decision as of local allocation. And I mean, we're, we could just go on tangents all day long about the consequences of this funding allocation. Yeah. And th there's the other fun piece is that it's, although not fun, I, you know, I'm, I'm still predisposed to say it in these terms is that, you know, it's not necessarily a clean kind of red state, blue state, purple state split, right? You point to New York. New York, a much bluer state, Connecticut, relatively blue state, um, both have huge disparities in their funding. And they have the they have the wealth to resolve some of those, but you know, Westchester and Long Island districts are still gonna spend what those districts are gonna spend, which is more than almost any other district in the country. Meanwhile, Utica, Poughkeepsie, Schenectady, these kind of upstate, you know, industrial smaller cities are, you know, they've been hurting for a long time, well behind all of the peers around them. And, and again, like the entire state of Colorado or Arizona, churning through, you know, one generation after another generation of students with little or no action to try to resolve those disparities in a state that has wealth in a state mm -hmm. that has school districts that spend ridiculous amounts of money per pupil um, to offer a, you know, a wide array of you know, low enrolled electives and, and, and extracurricular activities because they can. The same Connecticut, but, places like Bridgeport, Waterbury, New Britain, same deal. But then we layer on, and this is something AASA picked up on in the last reauthorization from No Child Left Behind to the Every Student Succeeds Act, we actually have a fundamental flaw in the current Title I formula, the reliance on number weighting versus percentage weighting. And this New York is a great poster child of this, where a larger but less poor district, so it has a lower concentration of poverty, could end up with more money per pupil. Now, that's very different than willingness. That's a structural flaw in the formula. But even when armed with the data to demonstrate this, Congress wouldn't write the formula correct the formula and the reauthorization. We can come back to this. I mean, we're so far off on another tangent, but you, what we're really highlighting, I think, for the listeners here is how interwoven this is, and by demonstrating all those intricacies, how complicated this is, let alone why, why it's an obstacle. I mean, you got to get people to reallocate money, and not everyone necessarily wants to reallocate money, let alone put in the additional funding that it might take to hold some districts harmless. Well, it's all, it all comes down to this political power balance issue. And sometimes, for example, like I, I see that one as kind of a, that federal policy example, the, the number weighting. It's, it's one, of those, one of those mistakes, oversights, whatever, that happened in its adoption to benefit those who carry more weight or power to begin with. And therefore, they're just not likely to ever give it up. Right. And that's why in state school finance, that piece of the money 
it still matters, but it's a relatively small piece of the puzzle. But what I've found in looking across state systems is that, and this came from a blog post that started as America's most screwed school districts, that the most screwed school districts in every state, in any state, tend to be this, those high poverty second cities. Now we have some first cities, major cities like Philly and Chicago, that are dreadfully underfunded. But even in Pennsylvania, Philly isn't in as tough shape as Reading and Allentown. It's the second cities that have never carried the same political weight mm -hmm. um, that can't seem to, that, that have had escalating poverty in many cases above and beyond that of the major cities, which also have a stronger commercial industrial tax base of their own. There, there are a lot of these other cities that are just kind of left out in Connecticut, Bridgeport, uh, um, excuse me, uh, New Haven and Hartford did better as a result of the magnet school program funding than Connecticut's kind of second cities of New Britain and Waterbury. The politics and the political power structure at the state level, at the federal level, I mean, that, that drives everything, especially dollars. That drives everything, especially dollars. I mean, we could end a podcast right there, but I sent you more questions <laughs> and I want to keep my train moving along the tracks here. So. That entire tangent, Bruce, started from a simple question of what's your favorite paper? <laughs> and so what I want you to now talk about is who you write for, who's your core audience and readers, because I think it would be really helpful for you to clarify how your audience has somewhat shifted, because I think not only your tone has changed as your career in writing in this sector has evolved, but so too has who you aim it at. Your intended audience is probably the same, but the accessibility of your paper has become much more layman-centric without losing any of its like academic weight. So if you could talk about who you write for, who your core audience is, and how that's changed, that would be really helpful. So certainly early in my career, I think you know most, most kind of academics, tenure-track faculty, um, especially those who are quant geeks, numbers geeks like me, we write for our five or six closest friends who do the same stuff <laughs> and we put it in journals that they read, um, which are read by probably five or six people reading the same geeky academic stuff. And, you know, it's kind of intellectually fun to do that, but it doesn't have a whole lot of impact on the world. So certainly over time, you know, as I, as I engaged in court cases, but more so as I got involved in writing policy papers and policy briefs, I shifted toward trying to write things that state policymakers might understand, or at least those who advise them might read and understand. You know, I think some of this is also coupled with the fact that I've been teaching courses for aspiring leaders, administrators, and in some cases, aspiring policymakers, and spending all that time on the teaching side, communicating with a practitioner audience and with a leadership audience has geared me toward, you know, trying to put things into terms that can be explained understandably or even illustrated in a way that is, you know, resonates more with those kind of on the ground, in the trenches, making decisions about resources in schools. So, you know, it's, it's things like, yeah, I can sit down and run a whole bunch of regression models, which makes sense to me and those same five friends that we were, I was writing for before. But can I, can I then come up with a picture of the results of those regressions that conveys whether a state school finance system is progressive or regressive? in a way that a state 
policymaker might understand, oh, that means that, you know, higher poverty districts have less than lower poverty districts and that they can also get that well. And that's after taking, taking into consideration differences in competitive wages or economies of scale and other things that, that, that are part of the puzzle. So trying to take the same complicated underlying math and stats and convey it in those understandable ways has become more important for me. But it, one of the really interesting twists is I think all of this really goes back to when I was teaching middle school science. Because, you know, in the middle school science context, it was very much, and we did a lot with data analysis, it was very much about, you know, how can, how can I make this stuff that's seemingly complicated, but really isn't, you know, be as, as easy as it should be, as straightforward as it should be. So, yeah, teaching middle school for a number of years, I think, really helped me kind of get back to communicating and working with really good communicators like Matt DiCarlo at Shanker has uh, been really helpful as well. And I think that's just an important context. And I actually can draw a strong parallel there, too. If you can communicate it to a middle school audience, or I used to teach high school special ed, could I communicate this information to my high school class? it should then be able to be accessible on Capitol Hill. I mean, these policymakers have careers and expertise, but maybe not to the level that you do. When you're going in with a paper as dense and as thick as what you're tackling, it's useless. Even if it's the most brilliant paper in the world, it's useless if it can't be comprehended. And so I, I really wanted the readers to understand both how your audience has shifted as well as how you approach writing to them. So that was good. So I just stumbled on to the next question, though. So as an advocate, relationships are key to me. Relationships with our AASA members, the current superintendents, relationships with other associations on Capitol Hill, with reporters, with researchers, with academics. What's the role of relationships in your work? Well, there, there are a number of types of, a number of types of relationships that, that come about. I, I do certainly, when, when it comes to reporters and education writers, I, I do certainly like to kind of keep myself open to and accessible to reporters and writers, but it's, you know, over time you become a little skeptical and cynical and you figure out, well, which, which writers are really, one, you know, individually, are they trying to call out a deep and interesting story, but also, you know, does their context allow them to, you know, or are they going to be constrained to coming up with, a, you know, 500 words and, and a good punchline? So, you know, I try to get a feel for that. I, I try more than anything to develop relationships where reporters will call me not even necessarily for a quote, but to maybe better understand an issue. But I also do follow, you know, reporters to figure out, well, who even, you know, some of them I've realized don't really have a genuine interest in calling out the issues and they want to be able to say, yeah, we talked to a professor. Well, then go call another professor <laughs> um, if, if you don't want to get into the substance. Other relationships, advocacy organizations, and for that matter, you know, plaintiff groups, which may be one and the same um, in, in states, can be tricky. When it comes to litigation, I like to be in the conversation early because I like to be able to help the lawyers involved in the case understand, you know, A, is there likely a legitimate grievance here and b if so who should be bringing that grievance right that i i don't want to you know 
be faced with, you know, a mix of the most advantaged districts in a state and the least advantaged districts in the state coming through a law firm to me and saying, can you prove for us that everyone is disadvantaged? Because then, of course, the answer is no. You, you should have had me in to talk early on to develop an understanding of who is disadvantaged, how and to what extent, and then we can help, you know, frame up those arguments. So, but that brings up the issue of working with advocacy groups too, and, and this certainly probably applies to yours, is that you have, you have a number of different positions that the organization has adopted. I made my research, and as a result, maybe, maybe I have developed a, a strong opinion based on my research that is consistent with a number of your organization's viewpoints, but maybe not some others. And I run into some Twitter disputes with groups with which I do a fair amount of work when I raise one of those issues that is in direct contrast with their, you know, w- w- with their platform or you know, whatever you want to call it. So that, that's, that's tricky. I, you know, at this stage of my career, I'm comfortable just, you know, I, I say what I think, I say what I believe. I <laughs> you so do. Much <laughs> so... Um, but, you know, I've been talking about charter school facilities issues, and one resolution is to have, you know, instead of passing all this public money over to acquire privately held assets, we ought to be looking at the more efficient use of, of space that continues to be publicly owned. One variation on that policy is co-location, as, which is a hot-button issue in New York City. And, you know, if I even use the word, I get a lot of pushback from people who think of me as otherwise supportive um, in New York City, because it's part of their platform to oppose anything and everything to do with charters, including co-location in public facilities. But I'd rather have them co-located in a building we still own than to give them the money to buy an asset that they then own. So, Well, that goes back to from where we sit. We have very specific provisions on charters, but we don't get into co-location because, one, that's not a federal issue. But at the local level, if a school district can manage that, our big backbone with charter issues is essentially our position on any entity taking public dollars. Any entity taking public dollars, whether you're charter, magnet, private, religiously affiliated, or public, you should face the same transparency reporting and accountability because then you have a level playing field right. and then the system would be strengthened. But that, that's a whole other podcast, uh, Bruce. Yeah. Maybe I'll invite you yeah. over for that one. Okay. So what I want to do is I'm being mindful of our time and how long I have you on the phone and how long our listeners are going to stick around. I want to really take this time and skip to the questions where we talk about your latest paper, which is the one that I've been sharing. I mean, I just told you on Saturday, I was talking about it with my run group. My poor friends were held hostage for a couple of miles while I talked about this paper. So I've been following you and your research on Twitter for a couple of years, and we started crossing paths in person more often. And I've especially appreciated the way that you can break down something as diverse and intimidating as cross-state education finance formula analysis to provide an understandable comparison and keep it relevant. And you can give a data-heavy presentation and not make my eyes gloss over. And that's what I want to focus on today, your most recent paper in the comparison and evaluation of state funding formulas. So in a nutshell, top-level elevator pitch summary, what do listeners need to know about your most recent paper, and why is it relevant at the state and local levels? Well, the most, the most recent report, what, what they need to know about is that we, we've tried to kind of boil down indicators of state school funding systems 
to kind of the, the core elements, that being the, the fairness or progressiveness, the, the effort put up um, by states, and the relative adequacy of the funding that yields. And thinking of these as kind of three legs of a stool, you know, to get the to get a sufficiently complete picture of a state school finance system, we have to kind of simultaneously consider all three legs of that stool. And so we we lay out the core principles behind the you know our model, which is that you know proper funding is a necessary condition for educational success. It's a prerequisite condition. That's been a part of the school funding fairness reports for years. Uh, the cost of providing a given level of educational quality varies by context, so we've got to have a way to control for these factors, like uh, uh, including addressing that higher poverty settings need not just the same but more resources to achieve common outcome goals, and that the adequacy and fairness of education system education funding systems this is it's state legislative policy choices. That effort piece is a policy choice which has consequences for adequacy and may also then relate to the fairness of the system. And we really try to boil it down to those that again, effort, adequacy, and progressiveness, um, and focus then on, well, where's the leverage? What might state policymakers need to do to have a more adequate system in Arizona, Colorado, or Tennessee? And which systems are more or less equitable or fair or progressive than others? So we try to boil it down. We we try to focus. I think it's still focused mostly on state policy action, kind of advocacy, legislators, but it has some new implications for federal policy. But that's a great teaser for the question I want to get into later, where we unpack Chapter 10. So let's stay on track with some of the specifics for this paper. And I think what we should do is actually, I want to make sure you take a moment and just read the full title. So your paper was done in partnership with another researcher in the Schenker Institute. And what's the formal title of it, Bruce? The new system we've created is the School Finance uh, Indicators Database. Mm -hmm. The new report title is The Adequacy and Fairness of State School Finance Systems. And it's... And collaboration with Matt DiCarlo of the Shanker Institute and my now former PhD student, um, Mark Weber, or Jersey Jasmine. Oh, Jersey Jasmine. We should, so Dr. Jersey Jasmine, if you're saying former PhD yes. student, correct? Yes, that is correct. He is now Dr. Mm -hmm. Jersey Jasmine. We have landed on a very career-appropriate professional name. So what I'll do is I wanted to confirm the name of that paper because when we publish this episode of the podcast, I will do my darndest to remember to link to that paper in the podcast blog blurb so that our members can access this. So with that elevator pitch, who was your paper written for and how did that influence how you structured the analytic approach in your writing? Which teases into my next question. My favorite, favorite thing about this paper is in your work to compare the 50 state formulas, rather than get into the intricacies of weights or what is the driving factor, how did equity weigh in, how did you address student poverty, did you offset for appropriate non-school factors, which can make anyone's eyes gloss over. You focused on three different lenses that are really approachable, effort, adequacy, and progressivity. So with these three lenses, why did you use those indexes? And how did your choice to use those indexes influence or impact 
who your paper was written for or the tone that you used? I, I think we're, we're writing primarily for a policy audience, and we gave wide latitude to, to Matt DiCarlo to really shape a lot of this. So a lot of the credit for kind of the, the great framing of this, it, it goes straight to Matt um, DiCarlo. Um, because we had, been, we had been buried in this for years and making it more and more complicated, and we threw him all the indicators, and, and then we kicked back and forth. How do we reduce this to something manageable? And that's where we come out with effort, adequacy, and, and progressivity um, as kind of three essential elements to get a full enough picture of how good or bad a state school finance system is. Um, but all the same kind of complicated stuff is still behind the modeling and data analysis that creates kind of predicted values of state and local revenue that can be compared from the 30% poverty to the 0% poverty district to create a progressiveness ratio. It's based on a regression model that has a bunch of factors, you know, economies of scale, population density, uh, variation in competitive wages, um, and then poverty interacted with the states. And, and it's really interesting, even the logo, the logo at the top of the webpage, which says School Finance Indicators Database, um, in the shaded gray background is the ugly regression model that's behind, <laughs> behind it. The logo is the regression model. So it's kind of geeky. So it, we, it was a lot of fun conversation, again, stepping back from work we had been doing for years and working with a new person on this that helped us really boil it down and reframe it in a way that I think, it sounds like in my conversation with you, that it it's kind of works. It, it hits that policy audience um, at a level which I think is understandable. But it, it hits a policy audience in a way that helps them understand that they have work to do but at the same time hits the general population in a manner that helps them be able to put pressure on policymakers because this work is so tough. This change is so tough because as you mentioned earlier, it has implications for what are we doing with tax dollars? Are we collecting enough tax dollars? How are they allocated? What are we investing in? And I think a lot of what it boils down to is that there needs to be more investment in education. And that means there has to be a question about, are we gonna cut something else? Or are we gonna raise taxes? And the one-two punch of having a paper that can be approachable to both policymakers and the people who can put pressure on policymakers, that's the sweet spot. And I think that's what really got me excited about this paper. We, we figure, at least in terms of level of conversation, if we're speaking policymakers or advocacy organizations, I guess we could probably, given that advocacy organizations are often hiring, you know, they're you know, more kind of technically oriented people, at least in the larger ones, we might be able to speak at a different level there, but you still, like you said, you want to arm the advocacy organizations with a version of the information that is immediately useful for communicating to policymakers. Mm -hmm. And that I think is something we've realized. We've actually also been engaging in research on that, with, uh, funded by William T. Grant. With my, I had a postdoctoral fellow whose entire you know body of work this past year was to, you know, he met with interest groups and state legislators and others around the country to figure out what kind of information do you use? How do you use it? What is more useful, less useful? So William T. Grant Foundation has a whole funded area focused on the use of research to influence policy. So it's also become kind of an area of academic interest to me. And, and my postdoctoral fellow, Bob Kim, just spent a year trying to tease that out. We had some wonderful conversations with some state legislators who were 
so incredibly well informed and so well versed on the details, the nitty gritty of, of state school finance policy in their own context, but even the broader work. I was running into people who were reading my book and I was like, wow, this is cool for me. I well, but it's just another day sometimes when you talk about the important work of the questions that they're trying to answer, which brings me to the last question I want to ask you about this paper. So much of your writing strikes readers as, well, that's obvious. This is a no-brainer. Let's fix this. With this type of clarity and the added momentum around the importance of equity and the understanding that investment matters, which are relatively recent phenomenons in the school finance conversation environment, what are the obstacles and why haven't states and locals and feds been able to make significant progress on this? Uh, the simple answer is tax policy, it's just an unwillingness to, to tax and to equitably tax and then to spend equitably the revenue raised by the taxes. I and mean, we have spent decades living in a world where, you know, the dogma that there's never a good time to raise taxes, any taxes, has just intensified. The partisan divide has intensified. And if you don't have sufficient equitable and stable tax revenue sources over time, you can't fix any of this. So that, you know, the fact that, you know, if the economy is good, oh, we can't raise taxes now, it'll collapse. If the economy is bad, well, certainly we can't raise taxes now. You're, you're at that point, you're stuck. You have no ability to solve any of these problems, which necessarily rely on tax dollars. You're not going to solve it with, with one-off federal aid, like fiscal stabilization. You're not going to solve it with philanthropy, which we seem to turn to as the solution to everything. It, it has to be done by broad-based, broad-based, well-balanced, you know, taxes that produce sufficient revenue over time. But there's also been, like you mentioned, there's, that, there's been that cover that fog of, well, money doesn't matter anyway. We just got to move toward a new normal. I mean, there are so many different buzz phrases for this. How you spend it matters more than how much. If you don't have it, you can't spend it. <laughs> well, in my um, response, so I lobby appropriations at the federal level. We explicitly weigh in on the importance of investment in education. And the most alarming thing that you can tell me as an education advocate, when you tell me money isn't the silver bullet, I've actually never said money's a silver bullet. If you gave us a slush fund for public education, that wouldn't be enough. We do need some accountability. We do need some guidance. So when someone tells me money's not the answer or that money's not the silver bullet, that's not what they're saying. What they're trying to tell you is they're trying to gaslight you into this idea that money doesn't matter. And that's right. absolute baloney because if money didn't matter, it wouldn't matter where I bought my house. It wouldn't matter what my property tax rate was. It wouldn't matter that one neighborhood has twice the property tax generation as another. And but Scarsdale, we all know that that matters. You know, and, and the, you know, the affluent Westchester districts wouldn't spend as much as they choose to spend or the you know, elite private independent schools, which on average spend double what public districts in their same area spend based on a study I did years ago. But they've hidden behind that, that fog. And the interesting thing is even before the, this recent kind of spat of studies that really reinforced the importance of money, there was a pretty significant body already <laughs> which I wrote about first in a 2012 piece for Shanker Institute, along with Matt DiCarlo, and revisited a few years later and updated. Um, so there was already a substantial body of evidence pointing to how and why money matters. It's just been reinforced with 
better longevity. We have more years of more data that you can run these models with now for like you know, Kiribo Jackson's work, Jesse Rothstein's work, and a couple of the others. So we've got more evidence now, but we also just have a little more awareness about it. Um, and hopefully this, you know, hopefully this fog <laughs> that's been used kind of as a smoke screen to hide behind, hopefully that lifts and we can start making some progress. I, I do think that new adequacy indicator that we have in this report based on that national cost model tied to how much does it cost to get to these kind of average outcomes helps lift that fog too because it helps us see just how far behind are some states in a model that connects the funding to outcome goals. So I, I think that's important and also that's the piece that has the broader policy implications. Well, and, and an opportunity for good potential. And I want to go back to something you and I were talking about before I hit record uh, for this episode of the podcast. And that was, and you just referenced it a couple of seconds ago when you talked about how much the access to data on school finance has changed and is making a lot more of these conversations much more immediate, much more black and white, much easier to articulate. And at the same time, we mentioned that there's another set of data that's coming out this school year, which will really hit at the local level. And this is that ESSA fiscal transparency. But if you could just speak a little bit to something you hinted at at the beginning before when you and I were just bantering. The disconnect between, well, is it within schools or within districts? Or is it between schools or between districts? Or is it between states? Is this idea of it's not just a failure of local investment. It's not just a superintendent who's responsible for this equitable allocation. We could have, under the current system, you could have superintendents making perfectly equitable allocation decisions, and we would still have funding flaws and inequities. That's the reality in a nutshell. So the idea that we might have solved a broader systemic flaw is a falsehood. I mean, the, the inequities certainly exist at all levels. There are huge inequities between states, and again, some of that due to effort, some of it due to capacity. There are huge inequities across districts within states, as we've been talking about, and there are there are inequities across schools within districts, but if we start looking at those school-level inequities, um, there are a couple of really important pieces. One, we ought to look at like school-level data across the entire state or a labor market within a state. So we're getting a look at the inequities both across schools within districts and across schools between districts. I did a paper on this called Rearranging Deck Chairs in Dallas to point out how in some cases, you know, a district's own funding may be so low relative to its peers, its immediate neighbors, that it constrains its ability to shift resources across schools within the district. If you're then going to significantly reduce resources in schools that happen to be a few blocks away from a school in another district that has a lot more. All right. So the interdistrict, the district boundaries are these kind of artifacts of a number of different political choices over year over the years. And we have to be cognizant of those within and between district disparities at the same time. We can't let one become a distraction for the others. And a big concern for me that I've, I've raised in past work is when we start focusing so much on disparities between schools in a district, we start thinking that that's somehow the bigger problem than the disparities between districts, or we start trying to rate and rank which problem is bigger 
rather than thinking about it altogether. And it is easier, I think, for policymakers to point a finger at a local administrator or bureaucrat for bad or inequitable decisions than to point a finger at an entire state for not having a sufficient tax policy to really begin resolving inequities. There are also technical issues. You know, I talked about previously looking across districts within a state, you got to account for a number of different factors. When you do within district across school analysis, you have to account for all of the different student population characteristics, which might, which might drive money. Um, the largest driver of differences in per pupil allocations across schools within districts is the proportion of students with, with disabilities. But you also got to be able to break that out by disability severity. So it takes more complicated models, kind of like our state school funding model, to really understand within district disparity. But then you can only really do much of that in the handful of districts around the country that have enough schools to study it that way. Most districts mm -hmm. around the country don't have more than one or two elementaries, a middle, and a high school. So you know, certainly most kids are served in districts with more than that, but most districts fall into that pile. And if you do a, an excessively crude analysis, even statewide, of districts that mostly have one or two elementaries, a middle, and a high school, and you compare the per people spending with respect to the share of kids who qualify for free or, free or reduced lunch, you're going to find that most districts have more money per pupil spent in schools with lower free and reduced lunch percent because most districts have higher per pupil spending in their high schools and compliance rates and a number of other factors play into having lower free and reduced lunch rates at high school. So you get, you have to do good analysis to get a kind of a, a non, you know, to get a meaningful finding in doing within district um, comparisons. And I'm really concerned that we're going to get a lot of state plans that propose analysis that's going to give us misleading results on within mm -hmm. district equity. Um, mm -hmm. I have solutions with Jesse Levin and I did a study for the state of Maryland, which has embedded in it the solution to that problem, but it's one that most will perceive as too technical to actually use. Yeah, but that's a different issue. Too technical and working to make it approachable or implementable is, is part of the work of policy and trying to get serious about a goal. So I need to be mindful of my time with you, though, because there are some more questions I want to ask you, but I also want to be mindful of our listeners' time. So I'm going to go into rapid fire for some of my favorite questions to ask our guests just trying to get a lay of the land of policy issues for the coming year in the presidential election. And you, Bruce, can either answer these in a pure 30,000-foot level, or you could continue the Bruce Baker focus and answer them through the specific lens of school education finance formulas. So, okay. most generally to this calendar year, what story are you most anticipating? What education policy debate or push are you most looking forward to this year? Well, I think already on the table is the issue of the competitiveness of teacher pay. What I'm hoping that leads to is a step backward to considering kind of the equity and adequacy of funding, which for the most part is what leads to teacher pay, as well as all the other working conditions around teacher pay, class size, and so on. So teacher pay is already on the table. The teacher uprisings of the past year helped mm -hmm. to put it there. But I, I hope that gives us the opportunity to step back and consider funding more broadly 
as it ultimately relates to how well teachers are paid and the workload they have to carry for that pay. Well, and what we do to make the career lucrative and attractive to high-quality professionals. I mean, we're not doing ourselves any favors right now to recruit highly talented adults into the teaching profession, and that just reinforces so much of what we're struggling with in this system, too. Well, that is, that's the, the macro level issue around teacher pay. And, and this uh, comes out in my, my first kind of Money Matters report is to say, you know, no matter what else we talk about, restructuring teacher pay, incentive pay, whatever, the overall level of pay matters. And it matters because of, it, it matters at that macro level about the quality of people we're going to get to enter the profession um, and to stay in the profession. And pay does matter in addition to working conditions, but one of the main working conditions is also money related. It's having a manageable workload, class sizes, total numbers of students served. Well, and I think it's a big part of this is also, what is your pay for a career that almost uniformly requires a master's degree? It'd be one thing if there weren't this high requirement for expensive credentialing, which is relevant to ensuring we have highly effective staff in our schools but to then not pay them what they might pay, be paid with a comparable degree in another field just begets a lot of this. Right, and that, that's actually, uh, we, we along with an Economic Policy Institute and now Rockefeller Institute have adopted the same kind of measurement approach to looking at the teacher pay gap. It's, it's an opportunity cost gap. What, what, does a, what does an individual for the same, in our model, it's the same hours per week and weeks per year at a certain age, at a certain degree level, how does teacher pay compare to what a non-teacher in the same labor market would be? Because you know, if you could be earning a lot more doing something else, then you're that much more likely to choose to do something else. Mm -hmm. Okay, and my last question for you, Bruce, you just answered 19, the 2019 question, but we have a presidential election next year. What role do you foresee for education in the great 2020 election? I think education policy I mean, it cuts a couple of different ways in the, in the federal debate. One, one it, it sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's just not a part of the discussion because federal education policy, as much time as we might spend on it, you know, in our world um, is still the smaller part of, it's a smaller part of education policy, which is mostly in the states and the small part of federal policy, which is more about other, you know, national security and, and whatever. So we don't spend a lot of time, you don't get a lot of people pitching themselves as an education president. On the other hand, it can be an easy pitch because if you pitch yourself as an education president, then you get there, you don't have much responsibility toward education. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's a nice kind of selling angle as well. You can, because it's a feel good issue. Let's hope that there's more substance to it. Let's hope that, again, going back to what I was just saying, that, the, that the, these teacher uprisings have put a spotlight on there being a national education kind of national education interest an interest in raising up those areas of the nation which are, have just thrown their education systems under the bus and having just a generally more equitable and adequate system across the country which necessitates rethinking federal policy and hopefully kind of putting that on the table as part of the as part of the presidential debate, certainly as part of, you know, congressional um, debates um, mm -hmm. for the coming year. Well, from your lips to the candidates' platforms. 
uh, we will make that wish. I want to thank you, Bruce, for taking time for joining us today. And for our listeners who are still with us, we've had the distinct honor of having Bruce Baker join us for today's conversation. For your information or a quick reminder, Bruce is a professor of education with the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and a longtime friend and education advocate and academic of AASA, the School Superintendents Association. You can follow Bruce online. His Twitter handle is at schoolfinance101, but it's spelled at S-C-H-L-Finance101. Bruce, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you uh, for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll have another one up in a few weeks. Thank you.